Great. All right, so that is a, that's a, an intro into, into the book of Second John, which if you're having trouble finding that, it's way towards the back of your Bible. We have been in Route 66. Route 66 has been a journey through God's Word, each book of the Bible, uh, a book each Sunday. Some of those have been rather challenging. Second John is a, is a nice, short, little book, so we should be able to do a little better with this one this morning. Um, Route, here, here at this point of Route 66, winding all the way down to the, to the end. And, you know, I had an idea. Maybe as we get into these last couple of weeks, I might do some trivia with the kids about Route 66. So those of you parents, grandparents, brought, brought kids with you this morning, um, maybe you could uh, just go do a little reading, searching, tell your kids something about Route 66, and maybe we'll, maybe we'll explore a little bit next week what they know about Route 66. I might have a few questions for them, okay? So... Route 66, winding down now. We're also winding down in terms of the first century. These letters of John were written somewhere around A.D. 90. Now that's about 60 years after Christ's death for us and his resurrection. 60 years later, I mean, this is the faith has been handed off from one generation to the next. Uh, maybe even a couple of times. If, 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 if Timothy was Paul's son in the faith, well, maybe by now there's a grandson that Timothy has also ha- passed the torch to. Jo- uh, 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 Paul and Peter have both long since been martyred, over 20 years earlier, and uh, John is probably the only apostle still remaining alive. And uh, as, as his life and ministry also are coming to an end, he is the elder of the church. He is the elder of elders. He's been there from the beginning, and he seems to like that phrase. John is warning of dangers that the church faces. In the midst, as, as we move from the first century in that apostolic age on into the future, which you and I are a part of even today, we stand on that apostles' foundation then he warns a church. Now, First John warned about errors that had, had come. First John, and really all of the epistles share this background. They're all written together. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you that Second John is a letter that's written to a particular church congregation as a cover letter, perhaps, for the, the position paper of First John. First John is not written quite like a letter. It doesn't have the same kind of personal greetings, although it has a very warm and personal and caring tone. He addresses little children. He cares for these people, but it doesn't have the same greetings and closings that a letter normally has. Second and third John are the normal length of a personal letter that would have been written in the first century. I think Second John is, is written to a church, the elect lady who, who is greeted by her sister and her sister's children, I think is referring to two churches, two sister churches. We still use that terminology today. And so, so John from one, from one church in Ephesus is writing to another church and warning them of a danger that he's already identified in First John. Uh, he's, he's, he's already spared, spelled it out. Now, the real issue at hand is there's been a departure. There have been some that have left the faith. Because they've left the faith, they've left the church. They've left churches, and they're seeking to draw others away after them. They have departed concerning the teaching of Christ. They have, they have come up with another version of Jesus that fits more in the Greco-Roman culture of the first century. As persecution has increased against the church, they have come up with a less offensive, 
easier to accept than the culture at large version of Jesus. And because they have created this version of Jesus that's more comfortable with the culture, this version of Jesus is also less confrontational about our conduct within the culture. In fact, this version of, of Jesus is a denial of the reality of sin in, in human life. That all of, all of this physical world, this physical universe even, is, is broken and messed up and fallen evil inherently. So God doesn't hold anything against us in this physical because the physical is just all wrong anyway. Really, the spiritual life is spiritual. It's outside of this. So whatever I do in the body doesn't really matter because that's physical rather than spiritual. So they've defined sin out, so that's why obedience is, is not an issue. They also, with the, these, new, these newcomers that have come along with new ideas, new kids on the block, they have, they have also, they, they look down on those old-fashioned folks. Those that still hold, oh, isn't that cute? You know, you still hold to that simple stuff that the apostles taught. You haven't developed, you haven't progressed, you haven't gone further in your understanding of the truth the way that we have. So they, they, they look down, rather than loving the church, they look down on those that still hold to things so simply as the apostles described it. That explains that those three tests that, Paul, that John gives in his, in his first epistle. How can genuine believers be assured in their faith that they're continuing to walk with the Lord and represent him rightly in a world where, where, where people are trying to draw them away? And it's holding to the truth concerning who Jesus is and what did he do. And along with that truth, out of that flows an awareness of sin. That's why Jesus came bodily. He came in the flesh because sin is real in humanity. And in humanity, he took our place and died for us. And so sin is real. And we live a new life. And it's not a matter of the obedience uh, as, as it arises out of First John, the obedience and love. It's not a matter of do you obey enough? Do you believe enough? And, and if you obey and believe enough, then you're probably saved. That's not the point at all. You see, the false teachers were saying that obedience is irrelevant. They, they defined sin out of the equation completely. So if obedience is a matter of when sin is evident in my life, I confess my sin and God is faithful and just to forgive my sin, to cleanse me from all unrighteousness, that was not at all. In, their, in these progressives' thinking. So it was, the, it was the denial of sin at all, and thus any sense of moral obedience to God. I'm not accountable to follow any rules because there's not really any need to follow it because God is spiritual, not physical. And the same with love. They look down on the true church. So that's the scenario. And so in that scenario, John answers that in 1 John. And, and, and then he, he writes a letter to a church in that context, and he says, these are things to watch out for. These are things that are dangerous. He, and these things that are dangerous directly, again, af affect the error that's been promoted. And so Second John echoes those same themes that you find in First John. The same themes that you keep reading through, you find in the book, the themes of truth, obedience, because sin is real, and love. So let's look at Second John. In fact, I'm just going to put the, the, um, a handful of verses right up on the screen for you. The elder to, to the elect lady, that's John, the elder of elders at this point, the, the eldest of the apostles, the only apostle remaining. And yet he doesn't, he doesn't write from that kind of authority. 
He writes as an elderly, grandfatherly figure in the faith to the elect lady and her children, and that, as, as, as I mentioned, refers to a, a local church and the believers in that church. But notice, I highlighted in yellow, truth, 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 from the beginning, because from the beginning is John's way to describe the historic faith that was given by Jesus to the apostles. So you heard from the beginning that the deceivers do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. All of these are aspects of truth. Truth is a central issue. It is in 1 John. You see it is in 2 John. Notice the uh, kind of the orangish love comes out again. Four times he mentions love in this handful of verses, verses 1 to 7. I have, I have on the screen before you. Four times he mentions love. Over and over he mentions truth. And look at the uh, blue words, walking in the truth, commanded, commandment, that we walk according to his commandments, commandments that you should walk in it. Over and over again, there's aspects of how we live because sin is real. Because God's standard is real and all humanity broke it and that's why Jesus needed to come in the flesh and stand for humanity in our place. So you see, all of that is still very much in the context of Second John. Okay, I, I, I show you that just to make the connection between 1 John and 2 John. Don't worry about it any more than that. Let's look, in light of that, let's look now at the next verses from verse 8. Over well, 7 and 8, we'll just kind of take the flow. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh is genuine humanity. I'll get into that. And so now the central imperative. One of the ways you look at a, 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 a passage like this, a book like this, you say, well, what's it really about? What's the main thrust? How can I know? Well, the main thrust, look for, well, is there an overarching imperative, a command? Is there something we're told to do or act on or something we're told that we should know? And here, the central overarching command is watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. And it's not, it's not watch one another. It's not that you should watch others and somebody else maybe is watching you. It's watch yourselves. We're in this together. It's not I should watch me only. It's plural. It's watch yourselves. We are responsible for one another. We are responsible for one another together. Watch yourselves in view of this error, in view of this danger, watch out. What's in danger? Well, the danger is watch out that you may not lose what we've worked for. You may not lose what we've worked for, but may win a full reward. So the loss is, he's not warning them about, hey, you guys, if, if you slip away, you might lose your salvation. That's not the point at all. He's warning them about the ministry that they've been given that they could lose. He's warning them about the reward that would come from being a good and faithful servant that they could miss out because they let it slip away, because they didn't watch out. Let me give you an example. We're in Route 66. Let me give you an example of this. In fact, I, this comes out of the image. Well, no, it's not quite the image I put on, the, on, on your bulletin this morning, that big pothole, something in the road to watch out for. But there's another thing in the road you can watch out for, right? You, can, you need to watch out in the road while you're driving along. I came across a radio station just a couple weeks ago. And it was, it's kind of a news and traffic and sports talk station. And they give these every so many minutes in the morning, they give these, these, uh, they give these weather and traffic updates. And a lot of stations do that, right? That's nothing new. But this one's different. They give what they call a traffic and smoky update. I hadn't heard a radio station doing that. I mean, that took me all the way back to when I was in high school and had a CB radio in my car. And that's actually why I had it. But, but, but they give... They give uh, um, 
traffic and smoky updates so you can watch out where the speed traps are that you don't get caught. Well, you know, there's another way to watch out, and that would be to just to pay attention to those little black and white signs that are on the road. Do you ever see those? Yeah? They have a number on them. Yeah? Follow that? Yeah. So, but you can watch out because if you don't watch out, then you're going to pay a cost, right? There's going to be a loss. There's going to be a loss of some time. You may have been in a hurry, but goodness, don't tell the trooper that. The ticket will take even longer. You're going to lose some time. You're probably going to lose some money, and you're probably going to lose the reward that the insurance company would give you if you have a good driving record, right? There's going to be a loss if you don't watch out. Well, so it is for a church as a whole and for our mission together if we don't watch out. There are specific things here that Second John, the apostle in this letter, to a local church tells us as a church that we should watch ourselves, that we watch out for, because it's important. Everything that we've worked for, everything that is before us is at stake. These teachings... Uh, or, or the, the, the teaching, these errors, they consider themselves progressives. They consider themselves to have gone on ahead. We'll come back to that word. Um, but you know, missteps are often disguised as progress. Watch out for that. To run ahead is a wonderful thing. If you're in cross country, if you're in track and field, to run ahead is a wonderful thing. But not if you're running ahead of God's truth. I love the way Paul takes those two images and puts them together when he writes to Timothy. He said, I have run my race. I have kept the faith. He puts the two together, running and truth. Uh, the, the epistle to the Hebrews says, let us run with endurance the race set before us, but not running ahead, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Concerning the tendency to rush ahead to something new, Don Carson, interesting, Don Carson, while he was in Portland, shared um, a little limerick he heard from an old Scottish preacher. He said, you say that I'm not with it, and this I do not doubt, but when I see what I'm not with, I'd rather be without. You see, there's some things that aren't worth going ahead following. There's some things that we shouldn't rush on ahead after. Not everything new is worth chasing. I learned a long time ago to be wary of those who had something new from God. Something that had never been seen in the Bible before. Watch out. It may not be real. It may not be valid. That's where the Mormons came from. That's where the Jehovah's Witnesses come from. That's where, you know, these general epistles... We had Paul's, Paul's letters, Paul's epistles first. And Paul seems to write, over, just, I'm going to make some generalizations now. Paul seems to write uh, to, to help us understand how we live the Christian life in relation to God. God has done this for you. This is true about you in Christ, and this is how we live that out. Paul seems to write especially in terms of the Christian life in relation to God. The general epistles, James, Peter, John, Jude, they seem to write how we live the Christian life faithfully in relation to a hostile society around us. It's an interesting difference. It's, it's the same faithfulness that we're called to, but the emphasis is a little bit different. How we live in relation to God versus how we live in relation to a hostile culture that would oppose our faith, what we believe concerning Christ. And so each of those... 
Peter, John, and Jude, they don't, in responding, in warning about error, in warning about opposition, they don't come up with new truth. You know how they, how they handle it? In each time, in First and Second Peter, in John's letters, in Jude, they always point us backwards. Peter says, I stir you up by way of reminder. I remind you of those things that you've already received. Jude says, Jude says, he, he refers to the once for all given to the saints faith. He doesn't give them something new. He, he reminds them of what they were already given. John does the same thing. That which you had from the beginning. It's fascinating to me that these new progressives, as you would call them, those who are running ahead of John and what the other apostles teach, they would say that, you know, John, oh, you know, he's good as far as he goes, but John really doesn't get it of what, how things really are. John's the one who lived with Jesus who walked with Jesus, who heard Jesus speak, who was with him even in the smaller groups when it was just Peter, James, and John. John was there. John stood there at the cross and heard Jesus' last words. John stood in the empty tomb. John was in the upper room when the resurrected Christ appeared. John was with Peter and James on the mountain when Jesus was transfigured before their eyes and they saw a glimpse ahead of the coming kingdom. John was with him, the one that we heard and saw and handled with our own hands. And these would say that John doesn't know what he's talking about concerning Jesus. What we have been given from God through his apostles is what we can rely on. So there's three, there, there actually, I, I, I came up with five things that I want to I invite us to watch out for. I want to warn you of that for us as a church, these are things that we should watch out for. What are they? Well, the first one I, 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 I gather in from, from uh, verse 9, and I've referred to it already. Let me read verse 9 now. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. So he's warning of those who go on ahead, who go beyond God's word, who go beyond what has been given to us. The term John uses, one who goes ahead, is never used anywhere else concerning false teachers. I suspect that John is using a term that they use concerning themselves. They refer to themselves as those who have gone on ahead, those who have gone on further and not everybody has. And they look down on others who have not gone on with them, those who still hold to the basics instead of having advanced, having gone further. Uh, that's why I refer to it as progressive, not necessarily in the sense of progressive, certainly not in a political sense today, but in going on, in going further, in going beyond the bounds of the faith that the apostles gave to us. Watch out for innovations that go beyond God's word. They consider themselves more advanced, further along, more developed even than John. John had been there. These latecomers say that they're the ones who know the real truth. Don't let anyone who considers themselves smarter, more sophisticated, more enlightened than you, like I warned the kids, I warn all of us together, don't let anybody else tell you not to believe God's word. It is straightforward. 
It is reliable. It is the firm foundation of our faith. God, who at various times and in many different ways spoke in times past unto the fathers, those who lived before through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us in his Son. And that reliable record has been passed on to us by his apostles. And that which we have heard, that which we ha- we've had from the beginning, the very beginning of the church, that's what we rely on. Don't let anybody take you away into something else than that. They don't know what they're talking about. And you know better, not because you and I are smarter, but because God has given us his word and because God has given us his spirit. It's not about us. It's about God, and God can be trusted. Watch out for innovations that go beyond God's word. What, that's, why, that's why you read your Bible. That's why you listen to me and you compare. Is that what the Bible says? Because it's not about me either. It's about what God has said to us already in his word. So we read. We want to know God. And it's not all about a book knowledge, but God has shown himself to us through Christ in his word. Watch out for innovations that go beyond God's word. Number two, watch out for those who define God's creation through emanations. <laughs> Where did I get all that? Well, look at verse three. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God. Isn't that a nice assurance? Not may it be true, but that, I love the way the ESV says it here. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son. Now, we only have 13 verses here. John's not wasting words. In fact, the length of the letter of 2nd and 3rd John seems to be limited to one papyrus page. So John's not adding in extra words just because it flows nicely. God the Father's, uh, or Jesus Christ, the, God the Father's Son, he's saying something very explicit, something that was denied in this early error. This is where I get that word emanations. What they believed about Jesus, what the, what the deceivers were teaching about Jesus that better fit Greek culture than the apostles' message was this. That, that God, there was a God, there is a true God who created everything. God first created, but not, not everything that you and I think of though. God first created, he, and he's the good God. But that God created another spiritual being, sort of a lesser God. And that spiritual being created something lesser still. That spiritual being created something lesser and something lesser, and ultimately you arrive at the one, whoever he was, who seemed to have a bit of a mean streak because he created this evil world. You see, if the world and everything physical, everything about matter is evil according to their thought. You remember when the Greeks laughed Paul off of Mars Hill because he mentioned a physical resurrection? Why would there be a physical resurrection if everything physical about matter is evil? There's nothing good in it. There's nothing redeemable in it. So they laughed Paul off Mars Hill. And so these teachers, to fit in with that Greek mindset, that Greek thought, they came up with a story of God and creation that made the immediate creation, which they assumed to be evil and doesn't matter. Well, that couldn't have been created by the true God, so it was created by somebody lesser. And Jesus often is somewhere in the midst of that stream of those who, one came from God, another came from him, another came from him, another came from him. Those are emanations, a whole series of them, and somewhere in there you get the physical creation that we're aware of. Okay. And that's not true. 
Jesus didn't later come from this one to that one to that one to that one. Jesus is not God's grandson. He's not God's great-grandson in the sense he comes from God himself. John says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. You say, well, that's all nice, but that's the Greek world and we're not there. We're not far off. Instead of emanations, we have evolution. Evolution sort of takes a thing and turns it upside down on its head. Yes, there's in the beginning. Maybe there's even intelligent design. Maybe there's a big bang, and the big bang created the initial spark out of which some prime, primordial ooze came from. And out of that comes from this, and out of that comes from that, and then one little thing gets to a bigger thing, to a bigger thing, to a bigger thing, to the creation as you know it today. So you were not directly created by God. Oh, that's silly. So they would say. It all happened in this chain reaction of evolution, which is not unlike emanations in that it greatly distances humanity from God. The Bible tells us something different, doesn't it? It says that you were directly created in the image of God. What's at stake? Who, we, who you and I actually are? And how, to God, you and I actually matter? That's at stake. If we simply come from the animals in a series of emanations or evolutions, if we come from animals rather than directly from God in his image, we might as well act like animals. Why not live out the pirate's code? Take what you can. Give nothing back. Right? We're just going to act like animals because we are nothing more really than animals. Why is it that we see so much of that in our society today? Because that's what we've been telling people for decades and decades. And unfortunately, they're starting to believe it. But we are much more than that. We have been made in the very image of God. We are not animals. We have been made in God's image. We are the capstone of creation. You are the capstone of all creation. As Genesis 1, as Psalm 8, as Psalm 139 declare, you are above all else made in the image of God. You have been made to be God's representative of himself to the rest of creation. You and I are unique. You and I are special. Every one of you matter more than the plants and the animals that you will eat for lunch. Watch out for those who will redefine God on the basis of emanations or evolutions. Why do I say that? Because when they redefine God on those terms, they also redefine you. Watch out for innovations that go beyond God's word. Watch out for those who redefine God's creation. Watch out for departures from, true, from who Jesus truly is. This is the big one, really. This is really the core of it. This is really the center. This, uh, we, let's go back to verse 7. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, and this is what they teach. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. They would say that Jesus was simply a man, that the Christ Spirit from God came upon, or the Christ Spirit who was one of those emanations from God actually, came upon the human Jesus after his birth, probably at his baptism, and then that Christ Spirit departed from the man Jesus again before his death on the cross. So that his, his birth was merely human, his nothing more, his death was merely human, nothing more. It's a denial of who Jesus really is. It's a denial that Jesus, who himself is the Christ, came in the flesh. That God, the Son of God, the second person of the triune Godhead, God himself took upon himself humanity. 
And there's a big deal there for a couple of reasons. Why that is crucially important for a couple, a couple of different reasons, several different reasons, really. First of all, all of heaven watches as mere humans, feebly bearing God's image, live and love in faith of God's promise. Humanity does matter. Humanity is different. The little choices that you and I make matter. Matter matters. The physical world matters. The physical life that you and I have been given. Well, think about this for a minute. The greatest thing God has done, the greatest thing in all of history that God has done happened roughly 2,000 years ago when God himself clothed himself in humanity and lived and died for all of humanity and rose again. Think about that. The greatest thing, the thing that heaven itself, the angels of heaven cannot grasp, the greatest thing that God did, he did not do in all of his power out there in heaven as God. The greatest thing that God did, get this if you get nothing else, the greatest thing that God did, he did when God became a man. What does that say to the value and the potential of your life? You and I, the things that we do in this human physical life, it is not throwaway. Things we do in this life, even in the midst of very difficult and hard and troubling circumstances, the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was homeless. And yet in in troubling and hard and difficult circumstances, the things we do in faithfulness to God have ripples into eternity that we have no way of yet fully understanding. Human life matters. Your human life matters because God himself did his greatest work in human life. That's deep. That's profound. And yet your life matters far more than you and I know what we do in our life and through our lives. And so John says, be careful. Watch out. Don't lose your reward. Don't lose all that we've worked for because what you do in that matters. It makes an eternal difference. It makes an eternal difference for you. It makes an eternal difference for others. Christ was truly and really separated from the Father in his death. The Christ Spirit didn't depart and then just a man died. Jesus Christ himself, God the Son, is separated truly from God the Father because of sin. That speaks to us about the reality of sin. It speaks to us about what it was that Jesus actually endured. What it was that God the Father... This is the center of the gospel. Without that truth, without the truth of Jesus Christ coming in the flesh as the Son of God and dying and rising, we have no gospel. We have nothing to come and celebrate together this morning. Without this, why would we lose our mission? Why do we lose that which we've worked for? Because we've got nothing to say. We can go out and be kind and good, and we could buy backpacks for school kids, and we can help homeless people, and we can do all kinds of wonderful things, but none of it will matter for eternity. If it, is, if, if it isn't flowing out of a foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who loved them and gave himself for them, and that we long for any opportunity to introduce. We can gather people for Christmas jazz, and it'll be a good time and good music. Yes, it will. But if it also isn't for the gospel, it'll not matter into eternity. There will be no ripples Our whole mission, the gospel itself, is at stake concerning who Jesus is. 
But there's another piece to this. The reality of the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, dies a real death, separated from the Father, knows that Jesus and the Father, God your Father knows the worst of your trouble. God your Father knows the worst of your hurt, your suffering. I was with um, a family a while ago. They had lost an adult child. One of the hardest things for parents to do is to bury their own children. I was there with them. Also, also there that day was Landis Epp. Landis is a chaplaincy ministry. Our church has supported the Epps in that ministry for many years. And Landis said something there that was so helpful to me. It was such a blessing to them. Landis simply put his arms around them and he said, God knows what it's like to lose a boy. Wow, did you ever think about that? That God himself knows what it's like to lose a son in your grief, in your loss. Does God know? Yeah. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. He knows. He's been there. And so our God is able to comfort us. Our God is able to wrap us. Our God is able to hold us up and we don't even know his arms are there because he knows what it's like. He, he, he knows not merely omnisciently because he knows everything. God knows it experientially. He's been there. Watch out for departures from who, truly, who Jesus truly is. They will rob you of the center of your faith. Watch out for political correct tolerance. What am I saying there? Look at verse 10 and 11. One of the kind of troubling verses for you, if you're, if you're a nice person, one of the troubling verses for you in this, in, this, in this letter, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, this teaching concerning Jesus, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. What does that mean? That... If, 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 if I know somebody who's from a different religion that I could never have them over for dinner? Does that mean that I can't even say hi and be nice to people who don't share my faith in Christ? Well, that's sure going to isolate us from society, isn't it? It may de determine how much encouragement and hospitality you give to the person that comes door to door with a different gospel, which is a false gospel. But what exactly does this mean? What it certainly means... It's referring to these false teachers who come along and that we will not support them, we will not encourage them, we will not help them in their evil work. What would that mean? Well, in the sense of inviting them into your house, where was church in the first century? Church was in someone's house. Do not welcome them in. And whether it means do not welcome them in and say, hey, we have a guest visitor this morning, we have a traveling teacher, and he's going to share with us this morning some new ideas he has about Jesus. We're not going to do that. We're not going to give them a platform for their evil error. We're also not going to, by, by, by welcoming into my own house, I, in, in first century hospitality, I would endorse that person to all of my friends. They have my endorsement now. Other people are going to trust them because they trust me. And we do not give that kind of endorsement, that kind of support. To, to welcome somebody into your house because the, inns were not a nice place to stay, for instance. So, so home hospitality, food and lodging was an important way to assist traveling evangelists. And yet if I assist them, it's just like writing them a check. And I'm not going to support. 
those who are working against the gospel of Christ. So beware, beware of those who would tell you, well, you know, if you're not accepting of everybody, if you're not accepting of every, other people and their messages as well, then you're a hater. You're intolerant. No. I can still be kind. I can still appreciate every person who's made in the image of God. And yet, I'm desperately going to labor for the truth. I'm not going to assist a lie that's going to take people further away from the God who loves them and gave his son for them. So don't let this push you away from kindness. Don't let this push you away from having good relationships with people who don't yet know the Lord. Maybe God will use you. But also be discerning in who you give your support to, who you give your help to. who you. Paul says, do good to all people, but especially to those of the household of faith. In our missions program here at the church, we don't just support anything. We're careful to support those who are advancing the gospel of Christ. Ah, uh, there's one last thing here. I said, watch out for the distance of personal, impersonal innovations. And my time is gone, but I'll, I'll go ahead and give you this one just because it's, a, it's really kind of an aside. I, but I think there's something we can learn from John's closing comment in verse 12. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and to talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The technology of messages, phones, and emails cannot replace the face-to-face connection that humans desperately crave. We are more connected and yet more isolated and lonely as a people than ever before. This is probably worse in the Northwest than other parts of our country. But people desperately need, and maybe as a conservative church, maybe this is, is, is particularly problematic for us, You know, the difference is made in the Christian life. The real encouragement, even as God came near in Jesus, the real encouragement happens life on life when people come near to one another. A note is good, a hug is better. A text is good. It can be timely when you can't be there. And a call is better than a text. We text when maybe I should call, but I call when maybe I should visit. We need to be life on life, folks. And I will run myself ragged if I try to be your minister of presence for everybody in the church. I can't do it. I'm just not good at it. You need to be that for one another. We need to be that for one another and for others. Beware of the innovations that take us away from personal interaction and encouragement with one another. As John said, he longed to get together with them and be face to face. Before you leave this morning, I'm going to give you an assignment. You greeted somebody earlier in the service. Before you leave this morning, I want you to give a hug to and share some encouragement with Christ with somebody who's here before you go. Five things we learned from Second John. Trust God's word. Let me put it positively instead of watch out. Trust God word, God's word. Know that God values you, his child made in his image. You have eternal value. God himself stepped into eternity to intervene because he loves us. He cares for you. So step into the lives of people around you. Don't be hesitant yourself to intervene in the life of somebody else. That's what the gospel looks like. Tolerance? Let's do good to all. Let's be kind to all. But especially to those. Especially encourage and especially support those who are of the household of faith. And before we depart this morning, 
Oh, I gave you those marching orders already. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this letter. Lord, it's a letter from the first century to us. It's a letter that tells us to watch out. There is danger. And yet you have safeguarded us. You have given us your son. You have given us your truth. You have preserved it through these hundreds and hundreds of years. You have given us a Bible that we can rely on. The very same thing that the apostles taught and believed that Jesus gave to them, you have given to us. And Lord, we thank you for that because we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this very solid foundation upon which our faith rests. Lord, as in this service of worship, at this time of worship, as we lift our hands to you, as we receive an offering together that will be used for the work of your gospel, Lord, would you bless the work of our hands? Would you take and use these gifts, not carelessly, but Father, would you see that they are used to advance the gospel to people around us and around the world who need Jesus? Father, would you open our eyes to who Jesus is, to those who need him, and to be aware of the dangers that would draw us away from our mission and your reward. This we ask you in Jesus' name. And all who agree said, Amen. Amen.